So I always, in anything big like this, I always have strategies that when that dark time comes, what are some things that I can do? And probably the hardest part, about four days before the race, my wife got news that she may have breast cancer. And so it just like, oh my gosh, that just kind of rocked our world for a little bit. Welcome to Helping Organizations Thrive. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of Brian Gillette on the show. Uh, good afternoon and good morning to you, Brian. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, Julian. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Yes, yeah, wonderful talking to people all around the world at different time zones. That's what I love about what I do and love about this show. Um, you are an organizational and leadership development consultant uh, for 25 years, uh, building high-performing teams and growing leadership capabilities as well as engaging and motivational speaker. Uh, today, we're going to be talking, exploring a little bit more about resilience. It's one of my favorite subjects, but how to get to the start of a 200-mile race and what keeps you going, because that's quite an epic thing to do. But before we get into that, Brian, I'd like to ask, what do you love about what you do? You know, when when you we were talking about that earlier before before the uh, the podcast started, I thought, God, there's so many things I love about what I do, Julian. Um, you know, one of them is I, I love talking to really smart people like yourself. Um, other podcasts or just people that I that I am fortunate to work with. Um, I, you know, I, I just I really enjoy that and kind of interacting with really smart people. And and I'm fortunate in my business to be able to work you know, kind of link up with a lot of people like that. So that, that just gets me excited. It keeps my brain alive. It keeps me live. It keeps me excited. Yeah. It's great talking to other people. That's what I love about this show. I talk to some amazing people and get to just have that one-to-one and, and the wonderful insights that I get and the learnings I get. Um, yeah. Pe- I mean, people may be listening. I don't know, but they, I know they are listening, but it, 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 it doesn't matter so much because I get so much from it just by, engaging with these people on the, on the yeah show. who knows if people are out there listening but you and i get a chat together so, so that's <laughs> yes. nice. and, and and while i haven't i haven't uh run my own podcast i've been on a lot but uh, i wrote a book a while ago and part of it was interviewing 100 executives and endurance athletes and after i finished interviewing all 100 i thought oh man i, I really really enjoyed that part i'd love to go back and do more of those <laughs> Well, I might be taking a lesson from that from that learning of I'm I'm about I'm I've been trying to write a book on team resilience, but I'm looking to then interview people. Uh, I've done some interviews already, but to expand that a little bit more and perhaps take some of your what lessons you've learned on how you've done that. Perhaps another conversation for another day. Mm-hmm. Um, but today we, we are looking at lessons in resilience, and I think you know whatever you are in leadership, business owner, wherever you are within an organisation. We all need to have resilience uh, in this ever-changing, uncertain world that we all try to navigate. And I want to take the lessons from you doing a 200-mile race, and which is pretty epic. You know, it's yeah. it's, it's a huge amount of, of, of miles on your leg. The first thing I want to ask, really, right at the start, is why did you decide to set out and do 200 miles? Because the reason I ask it, because I think the why is really quite important to know, because that's the bit probably can keep you going a little bit more. It, that is a huge thing that keeps you going. In fact, you know, when we talk about resilience, when you talk about what keeps you going, that's one of the big things is understanding kind of 
what's at that finish line and why are you why are you doing that so why the 200 mile run I so I have not always been a runner. I'm um, generally I'm a cyclist at my core, and I've done a lot on the bicycle. I've, I've bicycled across the United States, which was four thousand miles. I've done a number of times on the west coast of the United States. Um, I did a three hundred mile one day bike ride, which was twenty almost twenty five, little over twenty four hours. And as I was finishing that that three hundred mile bike ride. You know, it's middle of the night and I thought, okay, what next? And and so I'm always asking that question, what's next? And that's when I got the idea of, well, you know, I've never, I've not, not really a runner. Why don't I go and train and run a marathon? So I ran the marathon and then friends and I, where most crazy ideas come from is friends sitting around the table. And one of them said, hey, there's a, a 50 mile a trail run. Do you want to do it? And I thought, that sounds fun. And so did that. And then that led into a hundred mile run. And then, you know, friends of mine had told me about this 200 mile run around Lake Tahoe. Lake Tahoe is just this iconic, beautiful, high mountain lake. And I thought, how cool would it be to run around? And you're in the Sierra Nevadas, um, which are just beautiful mountains. They, you know, go up to like 10,000. We, I hit almost 10,000 feet on the run. So it, it was just, it, it is so cool to be able to experience something like that. And I thought, uh, let's try it. And, and, I, and I wonder, I always want to understand how far can you push the mind and the body? Yeah, physically, it's a very difficult thing to do. But mentally is what gets you to the finish line. So it's, it's that, how far can you go? And, and I presume this is over a, a number of days, this 200 miles, is it? So it, it is an organized run um, and you have 100 hours to complete it. And so within those 100 hours, you know, you, you start, I think we started at like nine in the morning and then you've got the 100 hours from that in order to finish it. And you can sleep when you want to sleep. You, you just, you can do whatever you want in those 100 hours. But at the end of the, you know, you have to be at the finish line before the 100 hours is up. Um, it took me 76 and a half hours. Um, I slept for about 90 minutes. Um, the first real sleep I had was somewhere about 60 hours in. Um, and, and so it's, yeah, it's just, just wonderful, wonderful experience, but you learn a lot about yourself in those 76 hours. And more importantly, you learn a lot about what your capabilities are leading up to just get to the start line. Well, I was going to say, just getting to a start line of these is 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 epic in itself. The fact that you put yourself out there to do a two hundred mile race, and and I know there's probably a lot of physical stuff that that got you there as well in terms of training. But talk through some of the sort of mindset or the mental stuff preparation to even get you to that start line at nine o'clock in the morning, ready to go. Um, yeah. What, and you're right. I mean, actually, you know, most people think the hardest part is going from the start to the finish. And it's really going from the moment you sign up to the start line. If you can get to the start line and you're healthy, then your chances of getting to the finish line are, are really good. It's hard to get to the start line. I mean, think about if you know, most people don't don't understand kind of what it's right, like to run 200 miles, but people can get their uh, get a grasp around running a marathon. Um, you know, most people haven't, but they you can get it. You you, you can mm. you can see it a little bit better. 
if you can get to the start line of the marathon, then you're in really good shape. And, and so I focused on three aspects, um, kind of, you know, I'm, I'm really good at breaking things down. I looked at what do I need to do for my legs? You know, what type of rain, uh, running, cycling exercise do I need to do? I looked at what do I need to do for my stomach? You know, what type of food and liquid do I need to be getting in? Um, when you are running and exercising, you know, some, some weeks I was exercising 30 hours a week. And when you're doing that much, you're eating, I would be eating five full meals a day. Um, so you got to look at the legs, you got to look at the stomach. But to your point and your question is, you also got to look at the head. And how are you mentally getting into, into that? Um, and so there are a number of things that I would do. You know, visualization is really big. Um, we've probably all heard about visualization. Michael Phelps, who's one of the most decorated Olympic athletes in the mm. in the world, um, you know, before he he jumps into a pool on a race, he's visualizing what it means to hit the hit the wall, you know, a, a hundreds of a second before his his uh, counterpart, his competitor. And I will tell you, I visualized crossing the finish line hundreds of times in my head um, before I fit, finished it. Mm. I visualized what success looks like. You know, often, and I've, I've worked with a couple of people, you know, they, they can see what failure looks like. And, and we go to that. I mean, you think about a professional, a professional race car driver or a professional cyclist. When they're speeding down the road, they don't look at the obstacle in the road they look at where they want to go. Mm. Because if, if we look at the obstacle, that's where our brain is going to take us. Mm. So, so in, in this type of training is how are you looking at what success looks like? You know, mm. I, I, I'll give you one example of a woman I was working with, you know, in, uh, in past couple of years, she was looking to, uh, she wanted to pass her, her law exam. And she had failed it three times. And, and apparently she failed it and she was very close to passing within a couple of points. And so we were talking and I said, you know, visualize what success looks like. Visualize because you know what failure looks like. You know what it means when it shows up on the screen. It says, you know, unfortunately, you did not pass. Mm. Visualize yourself going in there, what you were wearing, how you're feeling when you get that first question pop up on the screen. And you look at it and go, oh, I know this. And then the second question comes up, oh, I know this. And everybody else around you may be, may be a little bit nervous, but you're just going through it. And then mm. visualize hitting enter and it says you passed. So visualize success. Mm. And you're, you're, so those are a couple areas that, that I like to focus on, you know, going into any other, any big event. Yeah, I, I, like, I like visualization. I think visualization is really powerful uh, tool. Uh, but I also I know Michael Phelps, and you probably know this as well that he'd he'd also visualize where things could go wrong, mm -hmm. and and so I I and I, I recently not well, recently a year ago now I I, I sort of uh, coached an athlete who was running seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. Oh, yes, and yep. so we 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 did some the success piece, which I think is really healthy because that helps you then resource all what you need. But we also looked at particularly one of her things was sleep and we visualized this whole thing about what could go wrong with the whole sleep stuff. 
yeah. and then that enabled her to understand okay and then and then i said well, what can mitigate it so we then looked at strategies that would help it if that happened and i think it's a bit what michael phelps does then you sort of you know if your goggles fall off or you your swimsuit tears what would you do if that happened so if it does happen you quickly got a strategy and i think that visualization is really quite powerful both from a visualizing the success but also visualizing what what if scenarios almost like scenario planning i guess it, it is and and part of the training is to experience those issues that you're when your goggles do come off um mm. it's it's to put yourself in the difficult situation so there's no doubt about it there there's also a view and, and this ties into what you were talking about is don't expect perfection mm. and i'll give you two example um, one of the guys I interviewed, he phenomenal executive coach, phenomenal CEO. He was on the board of one of the companies I worked for, and I brought him in a lot to uh, to work on leadership with with some of my folks. And and he's also an amazing golfer. Uh, and, and so he goes, when I go out and I golf, he goes, I have the two bogey rule, and what that means is I'm allowing myself in a game to get two bogeys and that's all. So if my first two holes, I get a boat, I get bogeys. I know it's like, okay, I've allowed for that. I've used them up mm. and now I can't have any more. So you allow for, you allow for not everything to be perfect. And, and I'll give you another example, you know, was I was training for the Tahoe 200 one of the things I knew there would be days I would not want to get up and run or go for a bike ride or do whatever. Mm. And so I allowed, you know, I, I had pretty serious training for about eight or nine months. And, and even prior to that, I had just run a hundred miler. So I was in good shape. Um, and so during that eight or nine months, I told myself, and I'm exercising six days a week, pretty, um, I said, I'm going to give myself three day, three times where if I wake up and I don't want to, to do anything, I can just, I've got a free free out. Now that if I was injured, that was different because then you have to, you got to, you, you shouldn't be doing stuff mm -hmm. if you're injured and you can't, you don't want to make it worse. But these were just days. It's like, if I woke up and it was cold or whatever, and I just didn't want to do it, I gave myself three outs. I never used any of them. Because when I would wake up, um, but at least I had that option. Mm. So it wasn't looking for perfection. And I would wake up and if it was raining, I thought, oh, God, this would be a day, great day to stay in bed. And I thought, well, if it's raining on race day or over race weekend, this is good practice. Yeah, so nice, it, nice bit of reframing always helps, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's being able to put yourself in those yeah. situations when it could go wrong. Because it's much better to deal with it, what, those those challenging situations during training. Mm. Because when race day comes along, you've already been through it. And it's like, oh, yeah, I can deal with the rain. I can deal with if my goggles come off or something breaks. I think it, giving yourself some slack, really, because I think sometimes we're, we're a bit hard on ourselves. And almost if you were talking to somebody else, you'd be less hard on them about getting out. And actually, I think having that sort of, whether it's a two bogey or a, or a three pass, you know, approach to something is really healthy. So you don't sort of strive for perfection and having to talk, keep pushing everything all the time. Yeah. And when you, before you started the race, what was your, I guess, one of the biggest fears 
uh, before you started it? And how did you deal with that fear? If you had any fears, you might not have any fears. Who knows? Um, you might have been completely full of confidence and that, we'll, we'll move on to the conversation. But if you did, how did you deal with that on a sort of daily basis? Just a short interruption to the episode to let you know that this podcast is brought to you in association with Logicorp, who are experts in HR support. Are you worrying about employee performance, absences and leave? Are you struggling with attracting and retaining the best talent for your business? I personally know the people at Logicorp and they can support you with every people issue you may face. So focus on what you do best and let Logicorp deliver your HR support as an extension of your business with a tailored, flexible monthly retained package that is right for you and your people. And they are offering an exclusive offer for the listeners of this podcast, where you'll get the first month's free in an annual retained contract. To get this offer, quote, helping organizations thrive. Now back to the episode. Going into the the 200, um, you know, my my biggest fear was more along the lines of if I got injured out in some remote area, um, because we weren't, you know, for, for much of the race, we were out in the middle of the wilderness, you know, where there were, you know, there were bears, there were all sorts of animals. Um, it was in the middle of the night. And so if something happens, you're a long way from rescue. And so that was the one thing that was kind of in the back of my head, but it wasn't, it wasn't such a big fear that, you know, it came close to even stopping me. What, and to your point early on, it's what do you do to mitigate that and kind of reduce, reduce that fear? You know, one of the things for the first 60 miles, you're by yourself. You can't have anybody that runs with you. Beyond that, you then can have a pacer of somebody that does, can run with you. And so throughout from kind of mile 60 all the way to the end, I had five different people that ran with me one at a time. And so that reduced that fear a little bit or reduced that issue. If something were to happen to me, if I were to fall, if I were to break a a bone, at least there was somebody there. The other thing is I carried a GPS device on me that people could track where I was at all times. And if something were to happen and I needed emergency assistance, there was a button that I could call and it would send um, it would send an SOS out. Um, and then, you know, there would be emergency personnel that could find me so they could track me um, no matter where. So I, I wasn't worried about I wasn't worried about failing. Um, you know, when you do something like this, there is a chance of failure. But that's part of the learning process, but it was really that making sure I was mm. safe because because I have I have two boys and a wife who who I'm dearly love and <sighs> and I don't want to I don't want to put undue risk that I can't be around for them. It's interesting. Even then, you said you know about failure. Actually, that's just part of a learning part process. It almost dismisses that if it happens, I learn from it, and if and so what? I just move on, isn't it? Almost having that mindset sometimes, isn't it? We have to sort of because. Failure is not really failure. It's just an opportunity to learn, isn't it, in terms it, of that process? It is. And I, and I remember. And that sounds very cliche, but it's really it, true. It really it, is it, true. It is. I mean, I don't like to fail, um, you know, and I'm sure you don't either. But I, I remember as a kid, um, I was skiing. Uh, my parents and, and my, you know, my brother and I would go skiing. And, and at the end of the day, I came skiing down the hill and. And, you know, I did this nice, you know, I was probably 10, Julian, and I did this slide where I 
sprayed snow all over my dad. And I, you know, I said with the confidence of this uh, Olympic skier, God, I haven't fallen all day. And he looks at me, kind of compliments me on my form. He goes, you know, when you're not falling, you're not learning. And, and that did stick with me. It's like, okay, now there's times when, you know, when you fall, that means you're pushing yourself. Mm. And sometimes you push yourself, you know, over the line um, and you have to realize, okay, maybe I need to back up a little and then try again. Um, but it is, you just have to kind of look at, it's like, uh, you know, all right, that, that didn't work. Let's try something else. And, and with the hundred people that I interviewed for the book, that was one thing I heard over and over. It's like, yeah, we're, we're going to fail at some things. And then we just learn from it and then kind of pivot a little bit and then try again. Mm. So going back to your race, so 200 miles, uh, 60 miles on your own. Um, and then obviously you're with somebody, um, and then, you know, whatever, 70 odd hours you did it in talk, give me a moment when it was pretty bleak and pretty dark and probably a place where perhaps you've never been before. And just talk me through that scenario, but also how you sort of got through that. Cause I'm sure you somehow learned along the way, how you're going to get yourself through it. Yeah. <laughs> So I always, in anything big like this, I always have strategies that when that dark time comes, what are some things that I can do? And probably the hardest part. So about four days before the race, my wife got news that she may have breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like, Oh my gosh, that just kind of rocked our world for a little bit. They, she'd gone in for her mammogram. They noticed something and they weren't sure what it is. They wanted to do another test. So that was, you know, that was about four days um, before. And then I think two days before, as we were driving up to the race, we stopped at the hospital to do a test, to do an additional test. And then, um, and, and then we continued on up to the race and, and we even talked about, you know, my wife and I talked, it's like, do we continue to do this? And, and she said, you've trained the entire time. You can't not do it. There's nothing we can do about the situation. So it is what it is, which, which is a big thing. It's like control what you control. We could not control how the results of that test were going to come back, you know, between now and when the race finished. So I had to try to put that out of my head. And, and so I started the race and, and we only told a couple people about what was going on. And, and you can see, I get a little choked up about it. Um, we told my pit, we told my, some of my crew members, um, we told one of the guys, a couple of the people that I'd be running with just so they knew that at some point I didn't hey, have a total breakdown. Uh, about 24 hours in, so I had just gone through the night. I hadn't slept. Um, I had just taken a caffeine pill to just kind of keep me awake. And I was, you know, I was starting to see the sunrise and it just hit me kind of the tears were coming down. Mm -hmm. And, and I told my, I told my pacer, I said, I'm just really in a dark point right now. Um, I just need, I just need to kind of be by myself. No, I mean, you keep running with me, but I, I don't really want to talk and I'm just going to put some music on and I have some podcast. I have um, a music list that is specific for these times. 
These are the songs that I absolutely love. I don't listen to them all the time, but they're the ones that can pick me up. And so for the next two hours or hour, I don't know how long it was. Um, I just listened to music. I just kind of went along, didn't talk to anybody and, and then eventually came out of it. Um, so it's having those things in your back pocket that when it's really bad, um, you know how to come out of it. So mm. another, another example kind of along that, how do you keep going? Um, it happened to me during training, um, Part of the training is I had to run four 30 mile runs in a row, kind of over four consecutive days. So Sunday I'd run 30 miles, Monday I'd run 30, Tuesday run 30, Wednesday run 30. The first 30 is really easy. The second 30 isn't too bad. And then the third 30, 30 I was really tired. You know, it's in August. And so it's, you know, in the 90s, it's, it's really warm um, out kind of the mid thirties from a, a Celsius perspective. And I just, I just like, oh, I just want to stop. I'm hot. I'm tired. I don't want to do this. And I started kind of whining to myself. And then, and, and then I thought of a friend who had just recently been diagnosed with cancer. And I thought, you know, what she's going through is far worse than what I'm going through. What I'm going through, I'm voluntarily putting myself in this situation. She wasn't. Mm. I could at any point, I could be home in probably about 20 minutes sitting on the couch and all my pain would be gone within, you know, 10, 15, 20 hours. Hers isn't. Mm. And so it just, it, it was just kind of a knock to the side of the head for me that, you know, Brian, what you're going through, yeah, it's hard but somebody else is going through something much harder and it just put things in perspective for me. Mm, yeah. And, and so those are a couple things that I, I often look at of, all right, how do, how do I get out of these dark times? Yeah. Uh, and your, your wife, how, is that okay? So, yeah. So just the yeah. listeners might be thinking, so, so when I started the race, I didn't finish that part. That is, so when I started the race, we did not know the results. And on the Monday I finished, she got a call and they said, yeah, it's, it's nothing. And so it was just like, Oh, so everything, yeah, everything was fine. But there was the it, it was the first time when you hear cancer, mm. you know, it's it was like, oh, my gosh. And now I have to go run 200 miles with this in my head. And it, it's one of these things. It's like control what you can control. Mm. I could not control that. No. So I can control how I deal with it. Yeah, but it's still tough. And it, and it as in to, no doubt. to go with that. But uh, I'm, I'm pleased that it was it was all clear. That's fantastic yeah. news. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just thought I'll just make sure that everybody heard that. So, so we've been thinking, writing in, asking to know. Was it when you? I mean, going through that race, was there any point when you thought actually I'm not going to do this? It, it just felt really hard, tough, no. physically. There was no moments. No. And what no. do you think? What, why do you think that was? Because I've done, I've done, I've done forty miles, which I thought was a long way. <laughs> that, that is, a, it is a long way. It's an impressive. Yeah. It's a long way, and um, and it, but and moments I felt, and it was the hottest day in the in the year as well, which didn't help. I'm not very good in the heat, yeah. and and at times I thought this is really hard, and then I just had to talk, break it. I just then broke it down. How far I've got to go? 
oh well i can just walk okay if i walk and just mitigated everything in into that way reframed and i carried on but i, I had moments when i thought i don't know i can do this yeah i i never had those that moment that i i thought i could never do this um now why i mean i think was was your question is i had trained really well um i had trained in the rain i had trained in the heat i had trained at elevation i had done long distances and so i knew when i stood at the start line i i was ready um and so i had done everything i could to make sure that i was at the best when i showed up i didn't cheat on the training i did you know it's like i had my food right i had my crew right and so mm. you know i made sure that i was prepared and yeah there were there were points that were hard you know as i talked about one of them um but there wasn't ever that point where it's like yeah i want to stop I, it just because mm. i knew stopping and seeing DNF did not finish after my name, you know, 30 hours, 40 hours, six weeks later was going to be worse than how I was feeling at the present moment. Mm. Yeah. That, 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 it's interesting. It's, it's being motivated by consequence is more motivating <laughs> than, con than actually finishing a race, which is weird, isn't it? It's, it, it's it, that, it, it motivating myself by having, the DNF, as opposed to holding a trophy, you, it's almost the reverse psychology has the, more power, doesn't it? There is that. I mean, there was also the other is I had I had a crew of seven people, plus a whole bunch of other people that were supporting me and kind of, mm. but seven people that were up there at the time. And a lot of people, they were relying on me to finish. And they they took time off of work. They took time away from their lives to be up there and do something completely selfless. And that was make sure I need I got to the finish line. Mm. So there was that. It's like these people are relying on me. Mm. I only had, you know, two things to do. Um, you know, I had to keep moving forward and I had to make sure I ate. That's mm. pretty much, and I had, you know, there were times I would have people tell me when to eat and there were times it was hard to move forward, but those were only the two things. It's like move forward and eat or drink. Mm. And so I had the, in, in some sense, I had the easy job because they were off on the side trying to figure out where is he? What does he need? You know, it's smoky. He needs something different. You know, he's, he's not doing well. So their job, I thought in many ways is a lot harder to deal with because mm. I can be crabby. They can't be crabby. <laughs> so. <laughs> right. so almost the pressure of not letting them down for the commitment. I didn't want to let them down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, interesting. and so it's, it's like, you know, there are a lot of other reasons that kept me going, but those were, those were some, some big ones. And what, when you look back on, on the sort of the, that 200 mile journey, did you discover anything new about yourself? What what I discovered with that and then even look back a little bit further, the 300 mile bike ride that I talked about a little earlier is and this is kind of the basis of the book. Is. I would put limits in my head about how far I could go, what I could do, whether it was career, whether it was on a bike, whether it was running, whatever. And I think those limits held me back. 
And so in doing that 300 mile bike ride and doing the 100 mile, the 200 mile runs, it made me realize that, you know, I put these limits in my head and they hold me back. So maybe how do I kind of remove some of those limits out or at least push them out a little bit further? And so that's the biggest thing that I biggest thing that I've learned in doing these types of events. Hmm. Yeah, it certainly makes you expand your boundary when you do such extreme sort of physical and mental yeah. challenges. And we we all have limits. I mean, th- there is that limit, you know. Mm. You know, at, at one point, you know, people didn't think you could run a four-minute mile. And then Roger Bannister mm. ran a four-minute mile. And now you have kids in high school, not many, that mm. can run a four-minute mile. So, yeah, there are limits of how far, how fast, what we can accomplish. But I think those limits are a little bit further out than a little further out than where we can see. And so part of me is when we say I can't, I always like to turn that. I, how can you? Maybe mm. you can't today. You know, there's a lot of people, you know, some that may be listening to today that may say, you know, I can't run a marathon. Um I, I just saw on the news last night a um, a woman, I think she was Down syndrome, just ran the New York Marathon. Fantastic. And, and so, you know, there's people without legs that run the marathon. You know, there's, it's like, so how do you turn, you may not be able to do it today, but what do you need to do in order to do it tomorrow? Yeah, and I, and I think it's, it's, Sometimes we set limits, obviously internally, but we set limits on those around us and the people we observe. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact I interviewed a, a guy called Harry and he he was a double above the knee amputee and he summit, summited Everest. Mm. Um, so not only Everest in itself is a big thing, but to do with basically no legs. Yeah. Um, and I remember, I don't know if you've seen the film 14 Peaks uh, with Nimsdar. Mm-hmm who climbed the 14 peaks in oh, seven months, quite crazy above, yeah. you know, above 6,000 meters. I think he got to K2 base camp and everybody was struggling to get up there, the previous group. And he, he, he then got, we all had a bit of a party, had a few drinks the night before, and then him and his crew got up and did it. And it was probably one of the toughest seasons. And then the, the other two crews that were, that were there got inspired by him and did exactly the same the next day or whatever, the next few days. Um, and it's sometimes seeing other people push the boundaries of limits can really inspire you as well and take you forward. Just as we finish, just what sort of, I got probably many lessons in the context of the world of work and business would you use from your 200 mile journey? What would be the one sort of takeaway you want people to sort of hear and think, this is what I learned and this could be really useful for you in your context of business or leadership. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things we talked about, don't try to be perfect. You know, I coach, I coach executives all the time and you know, a, a lot times somebody will come up, it's like, Oh, you know, I've got to be perfect at this. And I'll, it's like, can you be perfect? No, but I've got to, can you No. Okay. You're trying to go for something you're not, you can't get. So don't try to be perfect. Um, the other thing is start small. We start small and build. So the, the name of the book is Epic Performance. Um, and the, the E is envision, the P is plan, the I is iterate, C is collaborate, and then you got to go out and perform. That's how you go from 
kind of achieve really big things in life. The I of iterate, you start small and you build your way up. I didn't start running 200 miles, you know? You know, prior to that, I ran 100. Prior to that, I ran 50. Prior to that, I ran 26.2. Prior, So you just kind of work your way up. And what you do is you build confidence. You know, I, you liken it to swimming. You know, when you learn to swim, you don't jump in the deep end of the pool. You start off in the shallow end of the pool and you build up your confidence. Hmm. And then you work your way to the deep end of the pool and then you build up your competence. So the water's the same. And, and so it's, it's, you know, don't look for perfection, start small. And then the other thing is, and this is, this came out so much in the hundred people I taught hundred, you know, executives, endurance athletes I talked to for the book is be deliberate. You know, we all have a certain amount of, you know, we all have 168 hours in our week. We don't know how many weeks we have, but be deliberate of how you're going to use your time and focus on the things that are really important. Brian, that's brilliant, <clears throat> brilliant conversation, brilliant insights. I uh, really thank you for sharing, and uh, you are an inspiration of what you've done. Uh, and I'm sure uh, your your kids must be inspired by their dad and thinking, how can I beat my dad and go beyond him? But it's not all about that. Uh, but yeah, I really thank you for, for your time today. Uh, if people want to connect with you and get in touch with you, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, Julian, I appreciate that. It's funny you talk about my kids. So my my youngest son, who's 15, he and I are going to uh, attempt to walk 24 hours um, in about a week and a half. And because he, he just he sees this. So the best way to get in touch with me is I'm on LinkedIn, you know, Brian Gillette. And it, um, you can also email me at Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, at epicperformances.com. That's E-P-I-C performances with an S.com. Or go to www.performances.com um, and connect with me somehow there excellent well we'll put all that in the show notes thank you for your time today brian thank you julian it's great talking to you thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode if you like this episode then please rate review and share it with your friends and colleagues as a coaching practice i coach high performing leaders and teams with extreme ambitions and it will help you go beyond what you believe is possible if this sounds like you then let's have a conversation you can contact me at julianrobertsconsulting.com.